So just to do a sound check, because apparently it was a bit quiet before. How's, how's this? Is it too loud? Good. Great. So, good evening. Here we are, the last evening of our retreat together. Feels like a a precious moment. And I've been wondering, you know, what would be the most useful things to talk about this evening. Also wondering where we find ourselves this evening. Because on the one hand, we're we're here at IMS. And I imagine each of us in our own particular way has been navigating the ups and downs of another day on retreat and uh, digesting the learnings from our experience and maybe enjoying some discoveries and experiencing some disillusionments or struggles. So we have our our situation on retreat and then we're situated in the wider context of our lives, our personal lives that are probably sort of looming larger in consciousness uh, as we have the prospect of uh, returning tomorrow, of re-entering into whatever are the circumstances of our lives. I find this is um, echoing a little bit. Just down a tiny bit. Yeah. And I'm really, is this still okay? Yeah, yeah good. So I'm also really aware of the, the kind of diversity of beings in this room and the uh, different you know, ages and situations in our lives that we might be coming from. And so each of us has this personal predicament of our particular joys and sorrows, our aspirations and dreams and our hopes and fears. And maybe the younger people in the room, you know, facing choices and decisions about what do I do with my life and what, do, what sorts of choices do I make around the options that may be open to me. And people maybe at my my stage in life kind of dealing with things like um, aging parents and caring for, you know, uh, um, elderly relatives. Others of us who may be losing in the process of losing or have lost loved ones, partners. And we're all, you know, there with the predicament of these aging bodies. Somebody recently described it to me as like we're all on a high-speed train ride to death. <laughs> it sounds a little pessimistic, but that's kind of how it is. And, and as he was saying, it just gets faster and faster, <laughs> the closer you get. You know? And then we, uh, so we have our own worries about our health and uh, about our, maybe about our children and our grandchildren or the children that we might have and the world that they might be coming into and so on. And there's so much beauty in this world which I hope that has, has struck you in 
small and large ways on the course of these last few days. But there's also many, you know, crises and challenges that we find ourselves in at the moment. And that the moment we are back out there with our devices again and plugged in, we'll be much more um, present in our consciousness. And so, you know, contentment is a nice idea, a nice ideal. Uh, but I, I just uh, read on the news yesterday that uh, the Arctic permafrost is melting at a rate that wasn't anticipated to happen till 2090 by the scientific predictions. The usual, nothing's changed in the realm of politics either while you've been on retreat. <laughs> and, uh, and on the way here, I flew here from, actually from Holland, although I live in, in the UK, and at the airport I picked up a little booklet of speeches by Greta Thunberg, the Swedish 16-year-old who started the climate strikes. And they're the speeches that she's given at the UN and to the British Parliament and at the World Economic Forum and so on. And they're powerful reading and very disturbing. And she says that if we, if we carry on acting in the way that we are, that actually what we're doing is we, we're stealing from her generation, you know. The, the, the way that we're living at the moment is... Uh, really profoundly unsustainable. And so I don't want to shut these things out of my practice. And yet there's a way in which, you know, when I, when I sit with this, I can very swiftly feel a sense of overwhelm and hopelessness. And particularly in, in a time like this, it feels like, seems like an ambitious thing to promise on a retreat you know, finding a true refuge. It's a big thing to promise to you. And in a way, coming on retreat can feel like we're coming into a kind of oasis. That there are things that IMS has set up so peacefully and so comfortably. Uh, We have an opportunity to really put down a lot of our cares and concerns and to begin to taste uh, a kind of subtle level of contentment, I hope, at least in moments in our own minds. And it can feel like we're kind of intentionally devoting ourselves to this introspection and and ignoring what's going on out there and that this this somehow is not real (laughs) life. And even just talking about these things that I've named already, I notice an ambivalence because part of me doesn't want to disturb you with disturbing thoughts in the peacefulness of your retreat. But I think for many of us, disturbing thoughts are brewing there in the background anyway. And uh, it's sometimes better to acknowledge that and to to name it. So there's... Just to recognize that there's a lot more making demands on us. And, that, you know, this is also why you, we, we say, um, you know, you can 
let go of your thinking for now. It's not so easy because there's there's so much more making demands on us than just what's arising here. This, um, our particular individual circumstances and then just our sense of our place in the wider world. You know, so that actually we're concerned with more than just my own happiness and contentment. And that's very real, the, the question that somebody raised, you know, if I get too contented, will I lose my motivation to participate and to act? And I think it's it's really important to recognize that paying the kind of detailed attention to our own experience in the way that we've been dedicating ourselves to over the last few days is absolutely essential uh, to us as human beings. But also that it's not on its own, it's not sufficient. So we come on retreat, and retreat really emphasizes the contemplative aspects of this path. But we also need to look at our our role beyond this, but to, to see this practice as, as um, a whole path of practice. And retreats are a, a really, um, I would say, essential part of that. It's like the, the sort of like pulling into the gas station on a long journey. This is where we get our energy, our refills, our refreshments, our have a a rest, you know. Um, So we're finding ourselves in a worrisome world and we all long for happiness and for ease and security. And I wonder what it is we we really need. I've been reflecting on this a lot. And I think that um, even more than an immediate sense of ease or happiness, what we, what we all really need, especially in these times, is a sense of direction and meaning, a way of understanding the situation that we're in and a sense of purpose. And I actually think that the, the three refuges offer a response to all of this, to this need for meaning and purpose, uh, that aren't just for the space of retreat, but they can, that we can carry with us uh, as, we, as we depart from here and engage with our, our wider lives. So I was looking for a way of framing them that actually um, spoke to somebody asked about, well, how would, you, how would you express this in kind of pragmatic, non-religious terms, the three refuges? And so what I've, I've come up with the sense that the, the first refuge is the message that there, there is something worth doing in this predicament that we find ourselves in it. The second one is that I can do it. I can do it. Each of us can do this something that's worth doing. And the third one is that we're not alone in this. We don't have to do it alone we're not asked to do it alone. So I just want to reflect a little on each of the three refuges in this way of framing it. So the first, the first suggestion that there's something worth doing. What we really need to do is we need to understand suffering. And to see it 
uh, as a subjective experience and to understand how it works. Because actually all suffering ultimately is a subjective experience. And the message of the Buddha is that there is a liberative way to relate to the suffering in our subjective experience. And Matthew really unpacked this very beautifully for us last night. Because of the the constantly changing and conditioned nature of experience, our efforts to find happiness through fulfillment of craving are never going to be ultimately successful. There's a different kind of happiness that comes from the abandoning of craving, from the dropping of resistance. The relief that comes when we drop resistance is a greater and more reliable source of happiness than the presence of any kind of pleasant experience or the ending of a painful one. And this is the the deep truth that the Buddha woke to and the reason that the Buddha becomes a refuge for us. And I hope that we're beginning to taste moments of this for ourselves. And this is how we begin to internalize the refuge of the Buddha, the refuge of awakened awareness. And our our practice here on retreat gives us the opportunity to discover this, to see this happening. And not only is this a noble truth, but this truth can be realized, and realizing it is worth doing. The truths that the Buddha taught, they come framed as tasks to understand suffering, to abandon the cause of suffering, to abandon this constant uh, dancing on the treadmill of craving, and to see for oneself how the end of craving is a release, is peace, and to cultivate the path. And this is actually the only thing that can bring us lasting peace and ease. And this type of contentment that the Buddha discovered is entirely independent of what we call the eight worldly dharmas, of the ups and downs of external conditions, of happiness and sorrow, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. So those those circumstances of our life are going to be changing all the time. But when when we're in touch with a a contentment uh, beyond this, then whatever the conditions that are arising, then qualities such as kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity become not just possible for us but also the natural responses of the heart that's at ease and content and this is this is the truth that's not true just for us but for all beings and so if we have this understanding this perspective then the significance of that for me is there's something that we can do for ourselves and there's something that we can do for the world And cultivating contentment is an act of self-kindness, but it's also a gift to the world. Uh, If we look at the problems that we're facing in the world at the moment, the collective harm is really driven by this insatiable wanting of human beings. 
one of the um, statements that's being passed around a lot in certainly in in circles in England of people who are worried about uh, the climate crisis at the moment is the statement that business as usual is not an option. The International Panel on Climate Change says we have 11 years to drastically slash our emissions if we're going to avoid uh, a, a runaway um, environmental crisis and that may be a conservative estimate and yet you know we we're addicted to business as usual I notice I'm addicted to business as usual there's so many um, habitual comforts and uh, ways of living in the world that kind of you know I think are necessary for my contentment <laughs> But actually, whether we choose it or whether it's forced upon us by circumstances, and this actually pertains in any situation, um, we're not always going to be able to uh, carry on with business as usual. If I'm prepared to uh, find contentment in other ways to not always get what I immediately want for my convenience and satisfaction, then that's very empowering for my ability to uh, both make changes in my personal life and to advocate for change on a wider level. Something about um, kind of wanting to keep my creature comforts, wanting to, for me personally, to keep flying to and fro to IMS that actually kind of decelerates my interest in advocating for systemic change. So really finding other ways to cultivate contentment. Also, when there's no contentment, I notice I'm prone to fear. Fear is another form of aversion, which I think is an interesting thing to understand. And fear is really disempowering. So I, I noticed this morning as I woke up, I had a thought about this piece of news that I'd read yesterday, and I noticed myself going into quite a fearful state. And then shortly afterwards, I became aware that for whatever reason, the fear had disappeared. And I just noticed how much more able to function I felt and able to think clearly, able to function I felt when the fear subsided. When I'm not uh, overwhelmed by fear, I'm open to being educated and to educating myself about the world I'm in and how my actions affect it and what I can do to make a difference. And also, when I act to make a difference and that action comes from a sense of compassion and equanimity rather than a sense of fear or a need to control, then I don't so much need to know about the outcome. The outcome in the world of conditions of the ways that I engage is is unpredictable, but the outcome in the mind stream of acting from a place of compassion or kindness is immediate. There's an immediate sense of freedom and well-being that's experienced um, when we act with compassion or kindness. 
So when we understand the mechanics of suffering in ourselves and in others, then we can respond to the suffering of others also with more effectiveness and also without overwhelm because we understand the limits of our own influence and we can also respect uh, other people's responsibility for their own freedom. So this is the you know, the first way I understand refuge, that there's something worth doing that enables us a life, to live a life that's intrinsically meaningful. There's an effective way for us to use our innate desire for happiness because there's a way out of suffering. So one way of putting it is there's a mountain worth climbing. This was another uh, recollection I had uh, after the beginning of the retreat. Somebody uh, recently framed to me the, the refuges in a way that I really liked about climbing a mountain. He said the, the first thing, the first refuge, the Buddha is like, okay, there's this mountain that uh, we can climb. Getting to the top is worth doing. And then the Dharma, he said, is like a map or the manual. You know, it's telling us how to get there. And the message of this is that we can do it. There's a path that we can follow. One of the traditional epithets of the Buddha is that he was a teacher, unsurpassed teacher of gods and humans. He was successfully able, I mean, he was a Buddha because not only did he have this realization, but he was successfully able to guide and to teach other beings to the same understanding and realization. And there's a traditional description of the Dharma as well that says that it's the, says that this manual that he left is clear, so it's uh, well expounded, and also apparent here and now. Sanditiko is the Pali word because it's comprised of our own experience, and it's also timeless. So it doesn't change as the historical conditions change. It's concerned with the eternal present. So although there are some specific manifestations of dukkha in our times that are particular to our times that weren't there at the time of the Buddha, the core message of his teaching is timeless. If you think about it, even in an era of great peace and stability, of general good health and prosperity and abundance, there's still the arriving of craving. And with the arising of craving, there's the arising of suffering. And the escape is still the same. And this is true whatever the conditions of our lives, in wartime or peacetime, in times of plenty or scarcity, times of stability or instability. And also, they're true for all beings on all planes of existence. So, thinking of this in psychological terms, if we find ourselves in a, you know, a state of blissful happiness or a state of profound suffering, the same truths apply. If we cling to what's there, we'll suffer. And this we're invited to come and see for ourselves. So the refuge of the Dharma is described as ehipasiko, which means come and see for yourself. (coughs) To be experienced and known personally by each of us with our own understanding. 
And this is really what we're doing here. Getting to see and gradually release the layers of our personal clinging and reactivity. So we've spoken a little bit also about equanimity. And equanimity is not just, it's not just a meditative state that arises out of success in concentration practice. It's something that we can cultivate. We can cultivate it through softening our our reactive patterns over and over again. And actually, just in practicing mindfulness, we're practicing equanimity. Christina Feldman defines mindfulness in a way that I find uh, quite useful. She says, mindfulness is the willingness and ability to be equally near all events and experiences with curiosity, kindness and discernment. We've been developing that here. And we can study our own experience and make from our own experience the path. We can identify the obstacles and turn the obstacles into the path, just as uh, we've been describing. Both Matthew and Roxanne have spoken about this. So all the the wanting, the craziness, the the, uh, unreasonable behaviors of our mind, they become our path. They become the things that we use to make this raft. And this path is made by walking it. So just naming the the factors of the path as the Buddha gave them, as I, I like to think of them in this way kind of also under the rubric of there's there's something there's something to be done and I can do it the message of right view is that I can make a difference that uh, my actions matter my choices matter both in my well-being and the well-being of others right intention is that I care to make a difference And then action, speech and livelihood, those central factors of the path, is that I act with care for the difference that I make. And then the last three factors of the path of effort and mindfulness and concentration, the cultivation of the mind, is I cultivate my mind to make a difference. And again, you know, here we've been more focusing on the cultivation of the mind, but that will underlie the way that we go back out into the world and we act and we speak and we conduct our lives. So this refuge in Dharma is a a two-way process. We have to look after the refuge. There's a a saying that I, I like very much in the... Um, traditional monastic chanting about the Dharma, that it says the Dharma holds those who uphold it from falling into delusion. If we look after the Dharma, the Dharma's going to look after us. We We don't just find refuge, but we have to build it. In a way, I think that the refuge is in the climbing of the mountain and not in the looking at the mountain. That's another way you could say this.
So to live from this understanding actually creates a responsibility. We're responsible for what we bring into the world and the way that we participate in the world. We need to make choices about that. And I think each of us is called to find our own personal ways of responding to the particular needs of our times. We all have different ways to contribute and uh, all of us are already contributing in different ways within the context of our families, our peer groups, our friendship groups, the work that we're doing. And to just continue to see, well, what can I do uh, to... um, to contribute to the peace, the welfare, the awakening to wisdom of this world around us. Holding this vision and walking the path, we need help. We can't do it on our own. And the Buddha said that there's no more important condition, inner condition for cultivating the path than our wise attention There's no more important outer condition for cultivating the path than wise companions. And so this is the the message of the third refuge. The power of the third refuge is this recognition that we're not alone. Other people are walking the path with us and and are there to assist us. So in the metaphor of climbing the mountain and using the manual, we have hiking companions. And actually, our lives are so deeply intertwined with one another that we can't be alone. You know, the, the, the sense that we're alone is just that. It's an illusion of solitude because we're not. We're so profoundly connected to one another. Just the fact that we're all sitting here in this hall, we're connected to the sangha of the past, present and future. In the traditional terms, the Blessed One's disciples, the disciples of the Buddha, people who have practiced and are practicing well, practicing directly, practicing insightfully and with integrity, people whose understanding of the path is clear, people who are working on uh, uprooting the tendency to greed, hatred and delusion in their minds. And we sit in a long lineage of people who've Uh, practiced in this way and we also are contributing to the lineage of people who come after us because you're sitting here in this hall doing this people in future uh, will be sitting in this hall doing this so we need to seek out wise people or perhaps another way to think of it is to be with one another in, in a way that brings out the wisdom in one another. You know, I hesitate to claim a particular level of wisdom that justifies my sitting up here. But there's something about the way that we've chosen to come together, all of us, to contemplate these teachings and to try to put them in, into practice that actually draws out what's wisest in each of us. So we don't have to be overly concerned with, um, you know, we need to find the ultimate wise person to tell us what to do. 
think it's more useful to be together in a way that we assist each other in our cultivation of wisdom. So to use the raft metaphor, we need to travel in a flotilla. (laughs) We can support each other with our map reading, with our repairs, with our... Sometimes when you get tired, to just tie yourself to someone else and float alongside. So sometimes I've had that on long retreat where I I just feel like my mind is going completely crazy and I don't know what to do. And you just pour yourself into the container of the retreat and you sit and walk when everyone else is doing it. And sooner or later, the the mind comes back online again and ceases to be crazy. It's as if you're carried along by the... uh, collective uh, efforts of the group or we te- we get we catch the flame of faith or inspiration from one another you know sometimes if i my faith has felt wobbly i've really um i've really benefited from just leaning into the faith of my teachers or my uh, fellow practitioners and then outside of the silence of retreat Uh, we can reach out to others. I think we need to reach out to others and to dare to connect around the things that really matter to us, to talk about our inner life. You know, in a way, that's how we find wise companions outside. A lot of the relationships we have, I think we don't, we never really get down to talking about what really matters to us. Uh, That's true. And... uh, Sometimes we need to, we need to um, be courageous around initiating that. We were having a conversation earlier about introverts and extroverts and trying to think of how many Dharma teachers or Dharma teachers in training we knew who we would say were extroverts. We kind of struggled. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think these kind of contemplative practices tend to appeal more to those of us who have a slightly introverted disposition than extroverts. And so for some of us, I'm not saying, you know, I don't want to generalize, and, uh, but for those of us who are of a more introverted tendency, it can be a push to actually reach out and connect uh, and share around this. And yet I think this is really an essential part of our, our cultivation and our growth and our practice. We need to um, be open to learning from one another and to sharing what we know with one another is an act of generosity. And to connect especially with people who will, who will widen our perspectives. And in that way, we, we're supporting one another's, not one another's denial, but our waking up. For me, there's a, there's a big relief in starting to talk about the things that really concern me. I think that was one of my, um, the thing that really struck me the first time I, I heard the Dharma. I went to uh, visit a monastery in England when I was uh, my last year at school and I uh, heard uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who became my teacher, talking about precisely these truths about craving and the end of craving and contentment and discontentment and it was the first time I felt that I'd heard somebody naming it how it was in my experience and even if it's bad news there's a kind of relief to hearing that named I found and sounds like some of you have too 
Um, more recently, I've also I've noticed. Uh, so I was in England where the when the Extinction Rebellion protests were happening over Easter, and there a large number of people in the Dharma community in England, and inclu- including some Dharma teachers and colleagues of mine who've become very involved with that. And although I don't like hearing, you know, the messages that they bring, the uncomfortable or inconvenient truths, there's also something about having what one knows, you know, actually named out there in the public domain that, again, feels to me, brings a sense of relief. I'd rather have um, these things spoken than, than kind of there ignored in the background of of my consciousness and when we do that we can start to take action and action is another way that another thing that dispels anxiety so connecting with sangha those around us and before us and after us one of the the things again that gives juice and meaning to my practice is the sense that I'm practicing um, for those who come after me as well. I sometimes wonder how the people who spend many years meditating alone in caves in the Himalayas and things do that without going crazy. And I think probably it's a large part of the practice is, is kind of cultivating bodhicitta or the uh, compassionate wish for the welfare of all beings one stays connected because one's aspiration is really um, connected to this uh, perception and recollection and awareness of other beings so there's a um both a sense of support in knowing that we're not alone and a sense of purpose. Because we, we naturally, as human beings, we need and we want others around us to be safe and happy too. I really loved um, Matthew's way of looking at this last night about uh, the sense that we're, we're all here inhabiting a common garden, and our personal um, role is to cultivate and tend to the patch of garden that is our present moment experience. But it's not my personal garden, it's a collective garden that we all inhabit. The phenomena that we experience in the garden aren't, aren't personal, but our responsibility is just our patch. And so the size and the scope of each of our patches of the garden is going to be different. We all have different ways that we're called to participate in our collective life. And what matters isn't the size or the scope of our, our personal patch of garden, but the quality of our cultivation And that is our contribution to the world. When we cultivate, contribute in that way, we build a refuge. We also become a refuge. We become a refuge for others. 
we become a source of clarity and safety in the world. And so I like to think, and this is a thought I had in the retreat where I was going crazy and I just let myself swim in the stream of other practitioners. I suddenly started seeing the whole body of retreatants as (laughs) one organism awakening together. And that's a very lovely way to to kind of let go of the concern with the, the comparing mind that wonders how I'm doing relative to the other retreatants, you know. To see ourselves as one awakening organism and every moment of cultivation of clarity of kindness that you have is a contribution to the awakening of the whole. And that sense that we're just a participant rather than the prime mover of things um, really beautifully expressed in in a um, something I heard recently from a Zimbabwean um, traditional healer called Baba Mandaza talking about so he'd be he's been involved in peace making and peace activism in Zimbabwe and South Africa for some decades I think and he says we are not peacemakers we are peace receivers Otherwise, we would have succeeded in making peace long ago. We're not peacemakers, we're peace receivers. We receive peace from above and peace from below, and we deliver it. So just briefly to come back to the mountain, this climbing of our mountain, these three thoughts that there is something worth doing no matter how difficult or um, challenging are the circumstances of our personal lives or our collective lives and that each of us can do it and that none of us is alone. We don't have to do it alone and we're not asked to do it alone. And also I think that the refuge is not in the getting to the top of this mountain, but it's in the activity of climbing it itself. And this requires trust. This quality of what's in Pali called sada, or sometimes translated as faith, but I like the translation of trust. The ability to be comfortable with uncertainty We kind of can't make use of refuge without that ability because our understanding is inevitably incomplete. But we understand enough to trust. Something I read recently from the Zen teacher Norman Fisher um, talks about... uh, The way that uh, the the crises of our times and the prognosis seems to be driving us crazy. And yet he, he finds a way to bring some hope into that. He reminds us from this deep Dharma per- perspective that on the deepest level, everything that we know is limited and provisional. There's always a next moment and an unknown moment. 
and the the fact that the next moment is unknown for each of us is inherently hopeful. We don't know what's going to happen next. (coughs) And when I approach life with kindness or with compassion, then I can taste that hope. So as we go back out into the world and we engage with the challenges that face us, that might be ahead of us, also there's a reflection from Joanna Macy that I find encouraging or gives me some sense of uh, orientation, direction. And she obviously she works when the, the teaches about uh, responding to the ecological crisis that we're in. But I think, again, this can apply to every aspect of our work, every, every place that we uh, want to um, engage to relieve suffering, where we don't know that the, what the outcome will be. She says, we don't know if we're hospice workers or midwives. But the qualities of both, the qualities that are needed for both of them are the same. And if we bring forth those qualities, we're doing the best that we can do. So for me, when I commit to these three refuges, I'm also (coughs) making peace in a way with that unknowability, but I can do that with a free conscience this sense that I'm doing, I've done the best that I can. And then there's a piece of gratitude, of gratefulness that comes with that. And the rest is not my business. So I hope that's not too gloomy a note (laughs) to end the retreat on, but I feel like it's a serious question, this, and uh, it needs a serious response. And really to take forward with us into our lives this sense to hold on to and to support one another in recognizing that there is something worth doing and that we can do it and that we're not alone. So let's just digest for a moment.
thank you for your attention. And we'll have uh, 25 minutes for walking now. And then please come back and join us for chanting if you would like to do that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.